This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome to everyone joining us from around the country and around the world. My name is Rory Fanning and I work at Haymarket Books. I want to thank everyone for joining us for our conversation, The End of Zionism, Thoughts and Next Steps with Ali Abunima, Philip Weiss, Nada Ndia. Ali Abunima is executive director of the widely acclaimed publication, The Electronic Intifada, an independent nonprofit publication focusing on Palestine. He has written hundreds of articles and spoken on the topic all over the world. He is the author of One Country, a bold proposal to end the Israeli-Palestinian impasse in 2007, and the Battle of Justice, Battle for Justice in Palestine, 2014. Haymarket Books. Philip Weiss is a writer uh, who had a long career in mainstream journalism before starting a blog on the Middle East that is now Mondo Weiss. Nada Elia is a longtime activist, a teacher, writer, political commentator, and frequent contributor to Mondawise. And now I will hand it over to Nada to begin this conversation. Thank you, Rory. Uh, so the, the impetus for this conversation was Ali's speech uh, in 2009 at the Hampshire College Conference on BDS, uh, a speech that he uh, entitled Israel's Loss of Legitimacy, which Mondawise reprinted in 2010. And so here we are 10 years after that speech, but also very importantly, 15 years after the call for BDS was issued. And we are indeed seeing a collapse of Zionism, even though Israel remains very powerful as a state. Uh, the call for BDS was issued uh, 15 years ago, almost to the day in, in that it was uh, on July 9th. And Ali's speech is called Israel's Loss of Legitimacy. So I actually do want to talk about the collapse of Zionism, the collapse of the, of the legitimacy of Israel, and, uh, and bring in basically, first I want to talk about the actual article, essay that uh, Ali talked. And Ali, in this talk, you give a very brief overview of the history of Palestine since 1948 in roughly 20-year periods. The first period, first 20-year period is 1948 to 67, which you describe as the period of ethnic cleansing, the Nakba, of course. It's the initial dispossession, the destruction of homes and villages, the expulsion of a majority of Palestinians. That's the first period. The second period, according to your speech, is 1967 to 1987, and you call it the luxury occupation. It's Israel's expansion almost with no accountability, uh, where it was actually comfortable to be an occupying uh, power. And then 1987 on, you give a 20-year period and you call it the managed occupation, where Israel is actually subcontracting the, the daily uh, doings of the occupation to the Palestinian Authority and so on. And you say that that period is over. So I want to talk about that the period's since the end of that, basically, is if 1987 to 2007 
is the third 20-year period, according to the speech you gave in 2009, what then has happened since? But before I even ask you that, I want to say that for me, while I totally agree with your 20-year, roughly 20-year periods, for me, the third period is 1987, the first Intifada, to 2005, when the call for BDS was issued. So it's, again, it's not exactly 20 years, just like 48 to 67 is not exactly 20 years, but it is 87 to 2005 when the call for BDS was issued. And for me, BDS is the third intifada, if you want, and it is a global intifada because the question of Palestine is a global issue, just like Zionism is a global ideology. But I will be talking about that later. I want you to tell me, according to you, when the period of managed occupation is over, what has happened since? What do you see as some of the main uh, moments and uh, turning points since then? This my yeah, thank you, Nedef. Thank you for that introduction. And I, if I just cast my memory back to the conference at Hampshire College in 2009, of course, Phil uh, Weiss was there. And actually, I'm very grateful to uh, Mondo Weiss for uh, recording and transcribing this talk that I gave, because it wasn't a written talk. It was simply uh, something that I had been thinking about and I gave from uh, notes. So uh, were it not for Mondo Weiss, I wouldn't have had this text to go back to uh, today to reread and also several times over the years because I think that this this uh, talk was sort of the nucleus for uh, the book I wrote in 2014, The Battle for Justice in Palestine, uh, which Haymarket Books kindly published. And um, really, the I think the key point I was trying to make in 2009 was that um, Israel's ability to control the situation primarily through its military might had expired. Israel had relied on military force uh, up to that point to control the situation. Of course, we know Israel reacted to the first intifada by simply shooting dead Palestinian children and teenagers. Uh, And um, we were moving into a phase where really the international battle for legitimacy was the crucial battleground for Israel in in a new kind of way. And of course, 2009 was just a few years after the BDS movement uh, was launched in, in the way we know it today. And the Israel, Israel itself and its lobby were starting to take notice of the BDS movement, which I think was m- much smaller and, and taken much less seriously in 2009 than it is today. And yet, I think we could see that this was going to be the force Israel would reckon with. In 2009, I was talking about these roughly 20-year periods, uh, which you mentioned. The first was the initial conquest. Of course, we can talk about the history of Zionism going back to the late 19th century. But for the sake of simplicity, I was talking about 1948 to 67, 67 to 87, which was the period when Israelis felt so confident going into um, 
you know, Israelis would go to the West Bank, go shopping in Tulkarem because, you know, it was cheaper to buy groceries at Palestinian stores. They would talk about their favorite hummus restaurants in Bethlehem or Nablus or wherever it was. The world, they felt the world was open to them. They were the victors. 1987, the uprising, the first father was really what broke that and drove Israel to uh, the Oslo Accords, which was really, in a sense, a, a, real, a real coup for Israel because they managed to um, turn the Palestine Liberation Organization into a subcontractor for the occupation. Now, Israel's intentions with the Oslo Accords, contrary to the propaganda that this was the beginning of a peace process that would result in a Palestinian state, Israel's intention was never to have a Palestinian state. It was always simply to uh, prolong the situation so that Israel can, could, could continue building settlements and conquering the land in the meantime. And this game of, you know, constantly talking about peace uh, and raising expectations for a peace process was really about deferring the reckoning with the reality of Israeli subjugation of the Palestinian people. And so the BDS movement, I think, was a real challenge to that narrative, a real taking back by Palestinians of the narrative away from the so-called peace process, away from the so-called two-state solution, and returning the focus to core Palestinian rights, not just the, the so-called right to, to a state in the West Bank and Gaza, but the rights of all Palestinians, the rights of Palestinians under occupation, the rights of Palestinians in Israel, and the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes and receive compensation. Those were the demands of the BDS movement. And these demands directly challenge the legitimacy of the entire Zionist project. So that's what I was talking about in 2009. And we could see Israel reacting by uh, trying to come up with an alternative, rea uh, an alternative narrative where Israel is not a, uh, an occupier and oppressor, but Israel is actually in line with progressive values. And we saw the beginnings around that time, 2009, of the strategies that everyone now knows as pinkwashing uh, and greenwashing to present Israel as gay-friendly, as environmentally friendly, and so on. And I think 10 years later, in 2020, I feel like what I said in 2009 held up pretty well. I think the things I underestimated, perhaps, was the durability of this managed occupation, that instead of it being a 20-year uh, period, it's now a 30-year period. Um, I think I underestimated the extent to which um, global respect for liberal and universalist values would hold up. I don't think I anticipated how Israel would actually become uh, really the model for increasingly authoritarian and fascist regimes in the West, 
including the United States, including the European Union. In other words, it, it, you know, I expected that Israel would, by 2020, really look like an isolated pariah in an increasingly democratic world. And what I think has happened instead is that Israel is really the model of illiberalism and fascism and ultranationalism that many countries want to emulate. But on the whole, I, I think the narrative holds up that really the loss of legitimacy is ongoing. Israel doesn't really have a story it can tell that's convincing, particularly to young generations in the West, let alone in the rest of the world. And we're seeing the dominoes falling uh, one after the other, uh, not least, of course, the recent defection of Peter Beinart, sort of the the real flag bearer of liberal Zionism, who recently just basically surrendered and said the game is up. So I think that's where we are today. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, um, so I had a question actually about the loss of legitimacy and how, you know, again, based on your article uh, on the essay that you wrote, and you had spoken... You, Speaking of South Africa, uh, South African apartheid in the early 1990s, you wrote, when a system lo loses its legitimacy, all the weapons in the world can't protect it. And I think that Zionism is <coughs> legitimacy, but how close are we to Zionism reaching the stage where all the weapons in the world cannot protect it? I'm looking at, you know, like... I want milestones, I want timelines, uh, time and I can't see that. Well, I, I think um, it's hard to predict. I mean, you know, nobody can say, okay, in five years, mm -hmm. Israel will reach its South Africa moment where the system has to come down and, you know, or, or 10 years. I want it to be five years. Frankly, I want it to be right now. But yeah. Uh, I think what we can say is that that what is that what are the conditions for that to happen? One is there needs to be broad global understanding that this is an illegit an illegitimate system, and we need people to be willing to take action against it in the form of boycott, divestment, and sanctions, among other measures to hold Israel accountable. And I think Israel knows that that is a powerful weapon, which is why they. They see uh, BDS as as being uh, on a par with Iran as as a threat yeah. to them. Um, but also, I think we know enough. Uh, we've lived through enough in the late those of us who remember the 20th century that uh, unexpected events can happen and things can change very quickly. And an analogy. Uh, you, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the so-called end of the Cold War, um, which hasn't frankly had very good consequences, in, in my opinion, with the hindsight of history. But nonetheless, nobody would have, sa nobody would have said in 1987, in five years, the Soviet Union will no longer exist. Mm -hmm. So in other words, all we can do is, is say, well, we, we have to work for the conditions for justice. And to, to expect that uh, that the transformations can come uh, faster than we think. I've never accepted the idea that, oh, well, it's necessarily going to be 50 or 100 years. I don't think we could 
maintain enough hope to get up in the morning and do the work we do if we thought, well, it, it has to be 50 or 100 years. No, I think this oppressive system of Israeli occupation, apartheid and settler colonialism could be brought down in five years, maybe three years, maybe 10 years, maybe 20. I don't know. But I don't think anyone can say, uh, well, it's, it, it can only be in 100 years. So we have to work with the hope uh, that it, that uh, we can create the conditions for it to happen sooner than that. And the moment we're living in of the, the black-led global uprising against white supremacy and systemic racism shows us that things that looked so settled, things that looked so ingrained, can be challenged. That's not to say that uh, you know white supremacy has been dismantled. But even a few weeks or months ago, we wouldn't have expected the kinds of changes, the kinds of demands that that we've seen in the past few months uh, to be happening. So I can't give you a timeline, but I, I do think we, we have to work in hope that this is within our reach, within our life. I, I realize I said that in 2009, but I, I definitely meant it then, and I definitely mean it now. Okay. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I mean, I'm trying to look at uh, tipping points, but I think the domino effect where actually it's not so much, uh, you know, one tipping point, one one uh, crisis, one peak, as much as a momentum. Uh, when history books are written, they do tend to simplify matters by referring to a tipping point, a specific moment in uh, in time. And as far as, you know, if I look at the Palestinian, uh, you know, our recent Palestinian history, there have been so many moments that should have been the tipping point. I mean, every military assault on Gaza with phosphorus, with cluster bombs should be a tipping point. The shooting of protesters in the March of Return should be a tipping point. Uh, the announcement of annexation should be a tipping point. And, you know, every attack should be a tipping point. And, and still we get the likes of Obama, for example, saying, if I lived in Sderot and never if I lived in Gaza, never if I lived in Nablus, never if I lived in Jenin, Abudis. And so, I, you you know, it's like I've sort of reconciled myself that there's not going to be one tipping point where we say, okay, as of this moment, global solidarity has shifted from Zionism to the Palestinian cause. Um, and I do think it's a matter of momentum. And I think that the momentum is building and, and we are winning, which I'm going to talk about uh, soon. But as far as tipping points, since you did mention Beinart, and I'm going to ask you and also Phil, um, would you say that his uh, his latest article, uh, the, where he gives up on the two states, basically, is a tipping point for liberal Zionists? Uh, when what will it take for someone like for a group like J Street to understand that separate is never equal? Uh, or does it actually matter to J Street that's, that separate is not equal, but they don't care so long as they have their separate state? Is there a tipping point in Zionism? And I would like to ask that of both Ali and Phil, because, Phil, you have your finger on the pulse of the Jewish communities in the U.S. Uh, yes, thanks, Ali. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, if we're not reaching a tipping point, we're seeing a lot of liberal Zionists running for the exit. Um, and 
That's a great thing. That's part of the discursive collapse that uh, Ali mentioned earlier. Are you getting an echo, by the way? Or... You are. Okay. Let me try to lower that. Yeah, that's better. Okay. Uh, Ali, why don't you answer the question and I'll put some uh, wired speakers in. Okay. Um, Peter Beinart's article. I mean, I think it is, I think it is a tipping point. You know, I mean, a lot has been said about his article, but let's remember that for the past 10 years or so since he uh, wrote his book, The Crisis of Zionism, Peter Beinart has been sort of the great, uh, the great white hope, and I choose my words carefully, uh, the great white hope of liberal Zionism. Because let's remember how he came into this debate um, as, you know, being a, a strong critic of the uh, Jewish communal establishment, the pro-Israel Jewish communal establishment. Uh, you know, he came in as a, a relatively young man saying, this establishment has betrayed younger Jews. They have they have failed to give them a sort of a vision of Israel that young Jews could um, could identify with. Israel has become illiberal. I mean, this is his and that. Obviously, I I would differ, but you know, sort of his his initial. I think it was in the New York Review of Books essay on the crisis of Zionism was really a, a quite a strong critique. I, I think that th his book that came after that was actually weaker than the New York Review of Books article. But, you know, his project was to rescue Zionism, just to, to come up with a, uh, a progressive Zionism who's, that could renew the well of support for Israel among the younger generation of American Jews. and. Uh, he acted over the following 10 years really as a gatekeeper, uh, making sure to, you know, to the extent that he would engage with Palestinians, it was very careful who he, he would engage with to make sure that they were only ones who were uh, sympathetic victims but who weren't presenting a strong analysis or those who presented an analysis that he could uh, – uh, you know, not disagree with too strongly. And remember, he also um, launched this website uh, called Open Zion, which lasted for, I don't know, a couple of years, whose job, again, was to kind of produce this new, improved uh, liberal Zionism. So I think he played a very large role over the past decade in, in attempting to control and shape the narrative and the discussion. Uh, he really played this kind of role that um, the Israel lobby had set out. If you remember the Reut Institute's 2010 report, uh, which said that we have to sort of divide the soft critics of Israel from the hard critics, and we have to accommodate the soft critics. And Peter Beinart played that role by carving out sort of, these are the limits of how you can, you can criticize settlements, you can criticize Israel shooting Palestinians, but you can't question the basis of the racist basis of Zionism, and he would just ignore challenges to that. Um, so I think for him to actually say the game is up, 
I've given up on a Jewish state, is a big moment. It's not a big moment for Palestinians. Okay, that I think that's the distinction I would make. We don't care what Peter Beinart thinks, but a, a lot of uh, of people, you know, in the American Jewish community and perhaps the broader, broader American uh, uh, community do care what Peter Beinart thinks, and therefore, I think it. I think, you know, let's let's graciously accept his surrender, but also. Uh, Point out that uh, he he should he should account I think for the the um, uh, the gatekeeping role he's played and also uh, you know I there were a lot of things I liked about his essay in Jewish Currents where he he made this there were a lot of things I didn't like uh, to me that's less important than his recognition that. Uh, the so-called two-state solution is no longer uh, a tenable position, either as a serious, sincere position or as a cover. Either way, it's no longer tenable. Thank you. So, Phil, I want to address the question to you now. And sure. At Beinart's uh, importance, the fact—I mean, the stature that he has among the liberal Zionists—is going to have an impact on. Groups like J Street, pro-Israel, pro-peace, but certainly two-state, or if not now, if not now, if not end the occupation now, then when? But there's still also two-staters. So those liberal Zionists who maintain to this day that two-states are, are, are what we should aspire to, are they going to be impacted by people by not saying, no, that's impossible? I think they are. Um, they're... they're experiencing a crisis right now over this. Um, they are trying to deny that he really means it. They are trying to dismiss him as morally wrong, fact, wrong on facts, wrong politically. Uh, all over the Zionist spectrum now, they're trying to um, dismiss Beinart. But the thing is that Beinart is a symptom of a Jewish generational shift on Zionism. Let me ask, are you still getting an echo? It's better, but some. Okay. So uh, he's not alone. Beinart is, as Ali has observed, a very conservative person temperamentally. He's, he announces a crisis 10 years ago, and as far as liberal Zionists are concerned, that crisis can go on forever so long as we figure out how to deal with the occupation. And thankfully... Uh, you know, the solidarity pressure, the BDS pressure, uh, the, uh, the, the buildup of uh, 10 years of Netanyahu and killing Palestinian protesters, all that has created a crisis for younger Jews. And I think they are what is really forcing this change inside Jewish organizations. They're turning on their parents. They're saying, well, how can you support this? Some of them are beginning to support BDS, in, even in communal Jewish circles. So that hemorrhaging is uh, allowed Peter Beiner to go further, but it's also creating a lot of pressure on these liberal Zionist organizations. And really, my favorite statement of the last week was David Harris of the American Jewish Committee saying, I'm getting pressure from donors 
uh, and the bleachers, the Jewish bleachers and the Jewish donors to take a more macho stand against Israel. Uh, this is a, um, a pillar of the Israel lobby, uh, David Harris, who's blaming donors for the pressure. So I think that what we're seeing is uh, the, the people who give a lot of money to these organizations in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, they're beginning to realize this is just, uh, as I think Ali said back in 2009, it's, it's really, really like, like trying, trying to sell Tylenol, uh, uh, trying to sell Zionism. And so that is sort of, uh, that's what's creating a flight to the assets. And uh, I, I think, think we have to also thank Netanyahu and, and the Israeli public. I mean, they have the Jewish public. They've elected this guy how many times? Liberal Zionists have said he's not the face of Israel. Israel insists he is the face of Israel. And so you have this discursive dissonance that's just, I mean, only an idiot would fall for it. What well, was so, uh, you know, annoying about Peter Beinart's analysis in the in the book the crisis of zionism and in his subsequent work was this notion that there was what he called democratic israel mm-hmm. and there was the and then there was you know undemocratic israel undemocratic israel is basically the west bank and gaza the occupation and democratic israel is israel within the 1948 borders and this was the ultimate fantasy of liberal Zionism, that there is this that there's neatly separable uh, faces of Israel. And if you just end the occupation that began in 1967, then everything will be beautiful. And this is a narrative that depends on erasing the Nakba, which I think gets half a page in the crisis of Zionism or something like that. I mean, I read it when it came out, so this is from memory. But it gets a very brief sort of uh, acknowledgement in, 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 his, in his worldview. Um, it erases the Nakba. It erases the, uh, the, the second or third or fifth class status of Palestinian citizens of Israel. And above all, it erases Palestinian refugees who, after all, are not permitted to return to their homes in what is now so-called democratic Israel solely and exclusively because they're not Jewish. Mm -hmm. And uh, Peter Beinart did not want to talk about any of that. He wanted to maintain this fiction that the uh, only the 1967 occupation is bad. We can talk about settlements. We can talk about the cruel things Israel does to Palestinians in the West Bank. Once in a while, we can even mention Gaza. But we have to uphold this idea that Israel, it's that there is a core democratic Israel. And I think that, that, that the, the developments that uh, Phil mentioned, sort of the, the Israel's insistence the Israeli public's insistence time and again that no, Netanyahu the racist, Netanyahu the warmonger, Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, who murdered on average 11 children per day in Gaza during the summer of 2014, these are our representatives, has just uh, demolished any notion that there is this so-called democratic Israel. And of course, Talking about, uh, we can talk about how uh, when you look at the allies of Israel, 
I, I wrote a piece back uh, in 2016 or 2017 uh, talking about how the election of Donald Trump would hasten the uh, loss of support for Israel in the United States because, uh, you, you know, uh, for, for people in the United States, for progressives, for liberals, for whatever you want to call them, Donald Trump and his racist, anti-Semitic, white supremacist uh, uh, regime that now wants to kill us all with, uh, you know, the pandemic is just the ultimate evil. And yet this was uh, the, the, the president that Israel embraces and identifies most closely with. And I predicted, and I, I think that that is that that has taken place, that Trump's embrace of Israel and Israel's embrace of Trump would accelerate the loss of support for Israel, or at least the polarization of support for Israel that we're seeing in the United States, where Israel has become just another niche far right wing issue. And people on the broad progressive liberal left no longer feel beholden to Israel, of course, with the exception, and this is an important exception, of the liberal establishment, which includes the New York Times, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, and so on. But when we talk about the broader base of the Democratic Party in this country, that loss of support for Israel has certainly accelerated in the Trump era. And then the other allies of, is of Israel globally are always the most right-wing and fanatical elements, whether it is uh, Narendra Modi in India or the um, uh, or, or uh, Viktor Orban, the uh, anti-Semitic prime minister of Hungary, the uh, or, or the neo-Nazi uh, parties in Austria and Germany, and so on. These are Israel's friends and closest admirers, and this. A uh, love affair goes in both directions. Israel loves them back just as much. Thank you. Bill, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, I think uh, Ali's absolutely right. Uh, and I would focus on the, um, for a moment, on that liberal establishment. I think that they're under tremendous pressure now. You can't be, on the one hand, supporting Black Lives Matter and, on the other, justifying the slaughter of uh Palestinian demonstrators at the fence in Gaza. And um, today we saw Barry Weiss uh, quit the New York Times. Um, this is an op-ed page that's in, obviously, in some degree of crisis right now, just in terms of where it sits on these questions. They've run four justifications in the last year or so of shooting Palestinian demonstrators uh, at the fence. Uh, I mean, it's uh, Tom Cotton uh, uh, says that we should bring a military response to American demonstrators, and we get uh, two editors ended up resigning from the New York Times over this. Well, no one has suffered for the fact that they ran these four op-eds, including from Thomas Friedman, justifying the slaughter of Palestinian demonstrators. And so I think what Ali is, and, and Netta, you also referred to, the the degree of support for Israel inside the establishment is very strong still, very strong. And yeah. I I do think it's going to collapse, and I do think it, it can happen in a hurry. Uh, but I'm not going to hold my breath. I always think about the line from uh, The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, you know, where he says, uh, how did you go bankrupt? 
you know, gradually and then suddenly. And I think that we've seen this kind of gradual bankruptcy of Zionism that's obvious to anyone. And yet you have these establishment uh, organizations and uh, institutions that are clinging to it. And today I reported uh, that um, Mark Melman, the head of this Democratic Majority for Israel, uh, an APAC group inside the Democratic Party, said uh, Biden was willing to have these task forces with the Sandersites on global warming, on immigration, on uh, racial injustice, criminal justice, on a fair wage. All these issues, they set up task forces over the last couple of months so there would be no war inside the Democratic Party between the left and the center. They refused to have a task force for foreign policy in Israel. So they are saying that this is the bailiwick of the establishment. We will set the policy on this inside the Democratic Party. They're not going to get away with it. But they have been able to get away with it time and again uh, in the platform in 2012 and 2016. They're going to try it again on the platform this year. And as Ali says, the base of the Democratic Party isn't having it. They may crush us again this year, but it's just not going away. It's only building. Okay, so uh, that brings me to my next question. I, I, I do agree. First, I want to say that I totally agree with uh, Ali that BDS actually challenged uh, liberal Zionism rather than, you know, hardcore Zionism, because BDS actually basically exposed Israel as a, a country with no democracy, no justice, no equality from the river to the sea. It did not focus on the occupation. BTS said we want an end to the occupation. Yes, absolutely. But also the right of return. And the people in Gaza are not, I mean, 70% of the people in Gaza are refugees from within Israel. So, you know, so we're actually exposing, BTS is exposing liberal Zionism by calling for equality within the country from the river to the sea, right? of return to the river, from the country to the river. And the sea. So, uh, so I think that BDS has actually denounced, uh, exposed liberal Zionism a lot more than it has actually challenged hardcore Zionism. But speaking of BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Everybody understands boycotts. Everybody understands divestment, though it's a little hard, you know, like I was actually researching my TRF investment, socially responsible. It's like, okay, what am I investing? Anyway, but sanctions. Can we speak of sanctions? Are we at the point where we are possibly considering sanctions when we have U.S. politicians now saying we should condition aid to Israel? Is that not the stage of sanctions? Ali, Phil, are we at the at the sanctions yet? I, you know, uh, we're much further from it than we should be. I think that's the first thing to say. And, um, but we cannot ignore, I mean, it is significant that U.S. aid to Israel is a debate within mainstream U.S. politics, that uh, candidates for political office no longer feel that it is necessary, to, except in certain you know, specific areas. But in general, they no longer feel that they have to give these sort of lavish uh, peons to Israel before uh, every election. Uh, and even in the EU, uh, which I'm a very strong critic, critic of those who know me, 
you know, there's talk of sanctions against Israel, much further from where we need to be. But I think it's also important to remember uh, that in the case of South Africa, people, you know, people who uh, were not alive at the time or people who didn't pay close attention at the time will say, oh, well, you know, South Africa and Israel are totally different because you didn't have this big pro-South African lobby uh, against sanctions and against boycott and divestment from South Africa. That's not true. There was a huge lobby in support of white supremacism in South Africa, a huge global lobby. And we have to remember that the big political battles in the 1980s were because um, mainstream institutions, corporations, universities, and governments refused to sanction South Africa. And they came up with every possible excuse against sanctions. So when students were having sit-ins at Princeton University and at universities around the country, it was because Princeton was saying, no, we're not going to divest from this racist, murderous, white supremacist regime in South Africa. Germany, the Netherlands, uh, the United Kingdom, these were all countries that refused sanctions against South Africa. The Reagan administration refused sanctions against South Africa. Why? Because they were making money from South Africa, and also South Africa was their ally in uh, the Cold War against uh, the Soviet Union. So they were prepared to ally with a white supremacist racist regime against uh, anti-colonial movements in Southern Africa, in Mozambique, in Angola, and in uh, in Namibia. and. So it was a very bitter struggle to uh, divest from and sanction South Africa. And you have to remember that the calls for boycotts on South Africa went out in the 1950s, but they didn't become mainstream until the 1980s. It took 30 years. I think I also want to take this opportunity because it would be a mistake to... uh, provide a narrative which gives all all the credit to Western consumers for boycotting South Africa in terms of the struggle. We have to remember that whereas there were great solidarity campaigns in the West, people went on strike, people lost their jobs in order not to uh, handle South African goods, for example. There was the famous strike in Ireland of uh, supermarket workers refusing to handle South African goods. But it was Cuba, critically, that sent its army to fight against the South African military in Angola, that played an incredibly critical role in uh, in uh, in uh, defeating the apartheid regime. Ronnie Castrils, the uh, uh, leader of uh, one of the leaders of the South African um, armed struggle, uh, I met. I've had the opportunity to meet him several times, and in his book, he writes about, uh, you know, the training that Mkonto Isiswe fighters were being trained in the Soviet Union, in East Germany, countries that are now demonized, but in fact were on the right side of history. Whereas the West was, uh, was supporting apartheid, Israel was arming the apartheid regime, of course. That's, that's well known and, and well established. So I'm saying that to give a broader context here that every such struggle is difficult and is resisted at every step of the way. 
as late, I believe, as 1988, the General Synod of the Church of England, the governing body of the Church of England, voted against divestment from apartheid South Africa in 1988. So the point I'm making is that no such struggle is easy. But despite all that resistance, apartheid South Africa was sanctioned. And I think we can take heart that the changes we're seeing, although they are not enough, they are far from what we need, should encourage us to continue the pressure because it is the grassroots pressure that is making this change and nothing else. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I actually do think that uh, we are winning and it's going to take some time to translate into an improvement in the situation on the ground, but we absolutely are winning. We've changed the discourse. There's now, uh, you know, it's easier to say I'm pro-Palestine than pro-Israel among many, many, many progressive communities today. And that is the discursive change that is so important. I mean, to be actually, you know, we can speak about Solidarity with Palestine, global solidarity with Palestine. We can speak about Israel as an oppressive, occupying, military, uh, violent country. And, and this is where the new discourse is. This is where the young people are. Um, and yet we are really, but I, I do want to say. I mean, Nada, I'm, I'm curious. Over what period do you perceive that shift happening? When, what was the inflection point there on the discourse from your observation? I definitely credit it to BDS because BDS, as I said, you know, it's like really the demands of BDS are in no way radical. They are not. They're moderate demands. We want equality. We want the end of an occupation that is actually illegal according to international law. We want the right of return, which is enshrined in the United Nations Declaration of Universal Human Rights. This is all we are asking for, really basic, basic, basic demands. It is interesting, it's it's fascinating to me that BDS is considered this absolutist, radical thing when it is asking for equality. I mean, equality is radical. And so those of us who have been explaining BDS for 15 years, like what are we asking for? The end of the occupation, where the occupation is actually illegal according to international law. What are we asking for? The right of return? The right of return is a universal, universally recognized human right. We are asking for our human right. That's radical. What are we asking for? The, the abolition of the, of the apartheid wall. The wall was declared illegal according to the International Criminal Court. We are asking for basically law. A legal system, human rights, very basic demands, not radical demands. And for me, I think those of us who have been able to explain BDS as not absolutist, not radical, but equality, that, that has, I think has, has played a major role in changing the discourse. I mean, are you actually opposed to equality? But are so you you're saying you have been getting traction for that argument, obviously, in progressive circles. We all know that in progressive circles, there's broad support for BDS or the idea of sanctions or boycott of uh, against Israel. I'm saying that the, the fact that BDS has made such basic demands and yet was vilified, yet was viewed as yeah. a threat, helped us 
actually say that, you know, the threat uh-huh. is Israel. So the campaign against BDS that the Democratic Party is conducting and that J Street is conducting and uh, all these uh-huh. Israel lobby organizations, there's, it's kind of backfiring or giving us more publicity. Is that your feeling? Uh, yeah, it's not exactly what I was saying, but I agree. It has backfired and it has given us more publicity. I mean, when something as basic as demanding human yes. rights, you know, <laughs> justice is only a threat to injustice. We are yeah. asking for justice. You know? I mean, my, I, I agree with you. I, uh, and, and yet to look at the establishment institutions, we're still at this point where only 13 Congress people have signed on to this legislation that would reduce aid to Israel over annexation. Mm-hmm. And um, that's shocking to me. And that they're dismissed as radicals is shocking to me. And those are real. That, that actually would be a real sanction. And all this other legislation is being put forward to condition aid, uh, to restrict aid. They, they don't want to reduce the aid in any measure. And that's where the liberal Israel lobby is now putting its political capital. Oh, we're going to be critical of Israel because we're going to restrict the aid. And it's, oh, it's horsemen on. So I would go back to what Ali has just said. The resistance also to, to ending apartheid in South Africa was, was immense until the night before. I mean, uh-huh. that's, Criticism and all of that—it's not—it's not, it's not going to happen from the politicians. It's going to happen from the grassroots, and the grassroots is—it's really happening. I mean, the 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 alliances that are forming amongst the progressives—you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, the Red Nation—these are the, the groups that are coming on board and totally embracing Palestinian solidarity. And so, for that, from the grassroots, it's going to get yeah. up. It's, Change does not come from above, not, not positive radical change anyway. But um, let, let's also remember that, um, you know, why does U.S. aid to Israel matter? It's because the United States is a superpower. It's a global imperial power. So the strength of Israel and its ability to oppress Palestinians and to steal their land and to dehumanize and murder them is intricately tied to U.S. global power, particularly the U.S. presence in the Middle East. And so I think it's critically important to understand that opposition, you know, that that justice for Palestinians is not um, isolated from the broader struggle against U.S. imperialism and U.S. domination around the world. And whereas... The U.S. is still immensely powerful and still immensely destructive around the world. I think there are signs that it's on the retreat, and that's a very good thing. Uh, I think it's very difficult to imagine that there can be justice for Palestinians as long as the U.S. is deeply mired in, you know, and occupying large parts of of uh, of the Middle East and the Arab world. So I think I think that. Uh, that's important because we have to make sure that the question of Palestine is seen within the context of a broader anti-war and anti-imperial uh, struggle. And I think that we have to understand that Zionism has always been tied to imperial power. 
in the present day, it is tied to American imperial power. And that's a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, there's been good mm-hmm. scholarship on this, but really U.S. support for Israel, which we consider to be this, this constant, really only ramped up after 1967. Before that, the U.S. supported Israel, but it was a much more lukewarm relationship. Um, and prior to that, the, uh, you know, in the beginning, of course, Zionism was tied to British imperial power, and it was only through British imperial power that Israel could be established. And indeed, as uh, Joseph Mess had, uh, he wrote a, a really uh, good article on this for the Electronic Intifada about a year or so ago, um, that Churchill uh, really saw Zionism as uh, the way for the British Empire to defeat communism, which, you know, Churchill, as a racist and anti-Semite, saw as really a Jewish uh, you know, a primarily or predominantly Jewish idea. So for him, you needed Jews that were on your side, on the side of empire, to defeat the communist Jews. And so Zionism was uh, very much, in Churchill's worldview, a tool of the empire to uh, to 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 keep um, the the empire intact and to defeat communism. So, and of course, the Zionists were very willing to go along with that. Of course, that was that was absolutely uh, fine for them. And then, after the waning of the British Empire, we saw this very brief period uh, in the 1950s where Israel was casting around for a new sponsor. And uh, you know, there was a brief flirtation with France, but then De Gaulle came in and uh, kind of. Uh, you know, somewhat distanced uh, France from Israel. But if you look at it from the perspective of Israel today, all of Israel's strategic eggs are in the American basket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there is really no uh, up-and-coming world power that I think is remotely interested in taking Israel on the way, you know, it, sort of adopting Israel the way the United States has. I don't think China is, although China has been quite uh, friendly to Israel. There's been a lot of Chinese investment there. Um, uh, And the European Union, as much as they adore Israel and adore Israeli racism, are simply not a viable world. No, I mean, they do. They're absolutely in love with Israeli racism. And it is, you know, Israel is the racist model for Western Europe and Eastern Europe today. Um, you know, the EU is not going to be sort of a world military power. So uh, part of the crisis of Zionism and the end of Zionism is the decline of the United States, which seems to be <laughs> increasingly rapid. You look at this, this country, it is uh, threadbare. It is a country that cannot, uh, does not want to care. You know, I'm, I'm talking about its ruling elites, and that's not just, you know, evil, bad, orange man, Donald Trump, but also the Democrat establishment have no interest in caring for working people in this care- country beyond sort of, you know, multicultural virtue signaling. We don't see the Democratic Party putting forward bold plans to provide everyone with health care to rebuild and provide everyone with housing and jobs and, 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 and everything that they need. So it's a crumbling empire. 
that takes time. But, you know, it's very difficult to see the U.S. Uh, maintaining this global role in, in 20 or 30 or 50 years. And, um, and I think that bodes very ill for Israel. Netanyahu and Israel generally made a complete bet on the United States. Well, you know, look at the United States. Would you bet on the United States today? No, I and, and I don't think they have anywhere else to go. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that's one of the more positive things we've said today. Uh, I'm really liking how this conversation is going, but I'm also looking at the clock. It's almost uh, 3 o'clock my time. Uh, there's a lot of questions, a few good questions coming in that I want to get to. But before I get to the questions, I did want to ask about next steps. And I want to ask, you know, like the U.S. and South Africa are, I think, should be viewed as cautionary tales because the official abolition of an oppressive system in the U.S., meaning slavery or in South Africa, meaning apartheid, has not translated into significantly improved material realities for the oppressed. How are we going to avoid a similar scenario in Palestine once Zionism has crumbled? I want to look at next steps and I want to be positive. <laughs> and I am positive. Personally, I, I you know... But well, I'm you not. said when Zionism crumbles, so I think you're very positive. <laughs> I oh, mean, I uh, am. Yes. Oh, I we are winning, you know. Yeah. I, I I want to say something about we are winning. Uh, the there, Ali's book, um, the battle of justice in Palestine. You know, very first sentence: the Palestinians are winning. And I assigned that to my students. And then at the end of this of the year, I always ask students if I were to teach that class again. Which books should I keep? Which books should I try to replace? And they all said I should keep this one. And one student said, how can you not love a book that opens with the Palestinians are winning? So absolutely, we are winning. Zionism is crumbling. But we are winning and Zionism is crumbling. We also want a, a positive future beyond the crumbling of Zionism. So <laughs> thank you. So that Neda, that's really sweet and touching. And uh, my love to, to your students. That's that I mean that's the, the most heartening thing any author can hear that people are reading their work and, and appreciating it. But you know, on this point about you know the failure of uh, of the end of apartheid in South Africa to bring economic justice and empowerment. I think, you know, that's a completely valid critique. I think what it points to really is the inadequacy of liberal rights. But that's not a, a critique that is limited to South Africa, because that's the same failure that we're living in the United in the United States. Like we're all, you know, we're supposed to celebrate American freedom when 32% of households could not pay their rent or mortgages last month when unemployment is through the roof, when 5.4 million people uh, just lost their health insurance, when tens of millions didn't have health insurance in the first place or health access to health care in the first place. It shows you that liberalism doesn't, you know, you can't eat liberalism. You can't eat freedom of religion. You can't eat freedom of expression. And whereas those things may be important, they are not uh, enough. And so the challenge for a post-Zionist Palestine 
well, we have to talk about, well, we have to put economic uh, justice and restitution and reparations at the center and, and not unique to Palestine. Those are the same challenges for South Africa today and for the United States and the rest of the world today. So this leads us to a broader critique of liberalism and to a broader uh, understanding of the need for economic economic democracy, not just liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. So how do we avoid a repeat of the scenario of uh, South Africa and the U.S.? <laughs> May, maybe that maybe that's the key, maybe that's the cue to take some of the questions from. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, I was going to say. I mean, for me, it's like what <laughs> we're the older generation talking, and I think when we look at the new generation, the people who are in the streets now, as we are on this webinar. They've got a vision. They've got a vision that is actually absolutist and radicals. The demands they are making are not demands of tweaks and reforms. They are demands of abolition, of complete transformation. For me, that is very, very hopeful. And these demands are being made here. They're also, I think, you know, Palestinians have also understood that justice is indivisible. Our alliances with the grassroots globally, I think, are actually give me hope that what, once Zionism has crumbled completely, we're going to have a, a whole new uh, foundation that understands that justice is indivisible, that we're not going to become, you know, the, just another failed post-colonial state. I would, I would like to think that we have the makings of something that is new. Uh, we've not only taught the word Hamas and Intifada and Shumud, but also the indivisibility of justice. And I think that for me, that's a very, very hopeful thing. So, um, yeah, not tweaks, not reforms, abolition and radicalism is what we need. And I do believe that the new generation is actually asking for that, the new generation of activists and organizers. Um, so questions, let me see. They're coming to my phone. Um, okay, so we've been giving credit to BDS primarily. There's a question. Nada at all, meaning Nada Ali Phil. How much credit goes to emergent voice of West Bank Palestinians who have been arguing for a one-state agenda for more than a decade? I mean, are we giving credit to BDS and to the Solidarity or to the West Bank Palestinians? Uh, Let me repeat that question. How much credit goes to the emergent voice of West Bank Palestinians who have been arguing for a one-state agenda for a decade or more? Well, I, I think that the primary credit goes to Palestinians in Palestine and uh, in other parts of the world, but particularly in Palestine, who have simply refused to surrender and continue to struggle. And I think in particular of Palestinians in Gaza who have fought military wars against the U.S. and EU and Arab state-backed Israeli army sadly backed by, uh, you know, tacitly backed by several Arab regimes. Uh, they have fought uh, wars against Israel, and they have kept alive the Palestinian struggle. If Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank had not been willing to resist, and not been willing to, uh, to stand their ground, we would talk, I wouldn't be sitting here in Chicago and 
we wouldn't be sitting here in the United States talking about Palestinian struggle because it would be over. Um, and I think in particular about, uh, uh, but do you want to get that? Is that, it's <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I, I, I tried, tried to, to mute, mute myself. myself. I, I seem to have two speakers going, going at the same time. I'm, oh, that's, I apologize. Yeah, that's okay. Um, and, and I think that, that, that we have to also point to the, uh, primarily to Palestinian political prisoners who have given up so much, uh, who give up their entire lives, uh, their families, their ability to, to live any semblance of a normal life to keep the Palestinian struggle alive. So to me, those are the ones primarily uh, who, uh, who, to whom we owe gratitude and allegiance for keeping the struggle alive. Uh, in terms of the one-state discourse, this is something that has, is, is not new. It's something that goes back many decades. It was originally the, uh, the, the position of the, uh, uh, Palestine Liberation Organization before it accepted the two-state solution. And the issue has been kept alive by thinkers inside Palestine and outside Palestine. Edward Said wrote about uh, the two, the one-state solution in, uh, I believe it was in 1998 or 99. Um, and uh, so, I, so I think that you know, what we talked earlier about Peter Beinart coming to this, and there's all this talk about, uh, you know, uh, uh, I see these critiques of a one-state solution, which point to Peter Beinart. Of course, it's a little frustrating that people are talking about this as if Peter Beinart just came up, up with the idea yesterday. But, okay, I'm willing to accept that because people are talking about the idea now and I, and I, I and but yes i think that um you know credit to all those in palestine who have kept the flame alive who have sacrificed everything mm -hmm. up to and including their lives so that we can continue to talk about a palestinian struggle so actually that brings up a follow-up question which is not here but i, I you know you speak about the, the Palestinians who have put their body basically, and there have been millions of Palestinians who have put their bodies on the line, who knowing that they are going to be shot at while just walking for their rights, still walked every single Friday for a year in the March of Reform. The Palestinian prisoner, the political prisoners, I mean, the sumud of Palestinians basically is what we have to give credit for. And so we have that strata of Palestinian resistance in, in its multiple forms where we can actually say exi our existence is resistance. And then we have the Palestinian Authority. And we've talked about that. But I want to, you know, we talk about the collapse of Zionism, the crumbling of Zionism. When will the PA crumble? <laughs> and just I mean, one, one, just to go back, one, one other thing. And let's remember that what's, What's beautiful about the BDS movement and the BDS call is its unifying force. It's like, I think the, the so-called peace process and the two-state solution divided Palestinians because the idea behind it was that Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza will get a mini-state at the expense of Palestinian refugees who will be consigned to permanent exile and at the expense of Palestinian citizens of Israel 
who will be co consigned to permanent subjugation, if not expulsion, from uh, Israel. And what's beautiful about the BDS movement is that it reunifies Palestinians conceptually. It's, it, it, it puts the rights of all Palestinians on an equal level. Palestine, mm -hmm. The right of return, the right of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, and the rights of Palestinians in Israel. So there's no contradiction between you know, the struggle of Palestinians in the West Bank and the, the struggle of Palestinians outside of the struggle of Palestinians in Gaza. The, the, the unifying message and the unifying fine demands of BDS are very powerful. And what you said, uh, Neda, earlier is very important. You said that these demands are not radical in the sense that we're asking for justice, we're asking for application of the Universal uh, Declaration of Human Rights, but also there is no ceiling. In other words, there is no limit to what we're asking for in terms of justice and equality. In other words, it is an encompassing demand. And as you said, the only thing that justice threatens is injustice. So when you talk about what would the future look like or what could it look like or what do we want it to look like, we want it to be an encompassing justice, a, a decolonizing justice that includes everyone, that the gain of Palestinians, the gain of their rights, the return of Palestinians to their homeland is also done in a context where all the people who are living in historic Palestine can live in a situation of justice. So there's no ceiling in terms of justice. But what we're asking for in terms of international rights is very minimal. And that's a program that is inclusive of all Palestinians. Uh, one more question. We haven't addressed Gaza much, and this question is, my question for the speakers is, what else should Palestinians and pro-Palestine activists be doing to help Gaza? I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, it's always that discrepancy between we are winning, and I say it, and you say it, and you open your book with the Palestinians are winning, and yet when you look at the reality on the ground, I mean, there's Gaza, right? What can we do to help Gaza? Just keep on doing what we're doing, and eventually Gaza will get better? That, no, I mean, that, that doesn't strike me as being a strategy, but for people in the West, I think that to the extent that we keep the focus on Gaza, that's very important. And solidarity activists have a responsibility to, uh, on social media and in other venues, in, including websites like EI and Mondo, to just publicize the conditions that Gazans are living under. And uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the way that it's no longer a livable place. And you have 2 million people there who are locked in. And the, the fact that uh, the COVID uh, strategy on the part of the Palestinian Ministry of Health, it's worked so far in Gaza. It's a miracle. And uh, so I think that any effort uh, that, that we have a responsibility to point uh, at the conditions there and to publicize that and keep the focus on it, uh, it's not had a beneficial effect so far, but it discursively, I mean, that's where I see my responsibility discursively. And I think that Gaza is a very important 
a central part of our argument and the discussion. I, I certainly agree with that. I want to point to uh, campaigns like Gaza Unlocked, which is a campaign uh, done um, by the American Friends Service Committee with Palestinians in Gaza to uh, to bring Palestinian voices to people in the United States and around the world, but to particularly to bring political pressure to end the siege. Now, you know, it, it's important not to, it, it, I think it's important to focus on Gaza because Gaza is the most uh, violent face of Zionism. I mean, what is being done to people in Gaza is the most brutal and raw face of Zionism in 2020. But also to explain where this fits in to the broader Zionist program of ethnic cleansing and the destruction of Palestine and the ongoing effort to turn Palestine into an exclusively uh, Jewish state. And that is what underlies the isolation of Gaza and the, the, the transformation of Gaza to a caged ghetto is about ensuring that, um, you know, that the Palestinians in Gaza can't present a so-called demographic threat to Jewish supremacy within Israel. So my duty is also to, to, to explain to people where the oppression of Palestine, where Israel's oppression and periodic massacres of Palestinians in Gaza fit into Zionism. We must never allow Zionism to be talked about as this airy, fairy Jewish identity thing where, oh, I'm a Zionist, and if you say Zionism is bad, you hurt my feelings. Well, okay. Zionism is keeping Palestinians caged in Gaza and murdering them with snipers if they try to return to their homeland so you can feel good about yourself. Okay, we, we can talk about, uh, you know, you, you want to feel good about being a Zionist? Fine, but let's talk about what Zionism is, not to you as a liberal Zionist on some northeastern college campus. Let's talk about what Zionism is to the Palestinians in Gaza who are murdered with snipers. Uh, Palestinians like Ibrahim Abu Suraya, a double amputee who is a wheelchair user because of a previous Israeli attack, who was murdered in cold blood by a sniper because he was protesting for his rights near the ghetto fence. That's what Zionism is in practice. And that's so, what it is to have a Jewish state, which that's is what, what Zionism is. Yeah, that's the price. The price of a Jewish state is that uh, you have to be okay with Israel murdering one in every thousand people in Gaza during the summer of 2014. If you feel okay with that, own it. But, mm -hmm. but let's talk about what it means. So we have to uh, struggle with people in Gaza for an end to the siege, an end to the blockade. But we also have to be talk talking frankly about, uh, you know, we have to make sure that Gaza is not reduced to some kind of humanitarian issue divorced from the broader political context of the brutal violence and racism uh, that Zionism is to all Palestinians. Gaza is, uh, or rather the conditions Palestinians face in Gaza is the most brutal and violent face of Zionism. But it's only one face of Zionism. Palestinian citizens of Israel 
and the who who live under dozens of racist Israeli laws, even though they can vote in Knesset elections, they live under dozens of racist laws. That's another face of Zionism. Palestinians in the West Bank, that's another face of Zionism. Palestinians in refugee camps in Jordan or Lebanon or Syria who are not allowed to return to their country solely and exclusively because they're not Jewish, that's another face of Zionist violence and racism. So we have to put Gaza in this broader context because one of the successes of Israeli and Zionist discourse has been to reduce everything to individual issues. Now, everyone is talking about annexation as, as if that's some big thing by itself. Uh, you know, or if there's an atta- attack on Gaza, well, everyone focuses on Gaza. And what's lost is the big picture. So our duty, I think, is to tie all this together in people's understanding and consciousness. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm looking at the time, I'm looking at questions, but I do think that this is a very good point to, uh, time to end because of what you just said. I mean, it's just, you know, this is a good time to stop. Um, there are more questions, including one question that I just want to, uh, you know, um, a, what are some resources you recommend for someone who's new to learning about this topic? So I want to actually suggest that Haymarket, which is uh, answering this, create in the chat some list where, where people can contribute resources because I don't think we can address that. Uh, we are almost out of time. So if anybody wants to add, Phil, Ali, any last thoughts, we'll take that. Otherwise, I think we should end now. Well, and, one, one last point I'd like to make is I think people should follow EI, follow IMEU, follow We Are Not Numbers, follow Mondo Weiss on Instagram, on Twitter. And there's an enormous amount of information that comes through these sources. And more, when they retweet and like these things, it helps build the momentum. And the positive thing that I would like to say in conclusion is that we are seeing a discursive collapse, that that the discourse of Zionism relied on marginalizing people like Ali and myself. I remember hearing shocking arguments from Ali 15 years ago that the two-state solution was creating apartheid. I found that shocking. And that awareness is finally beginning to penetrate the American mainstream. And once it gets in, I just don't, I don't, you, you can't get rid of it, that, that type of awareness. I, I'd like to add to what Phil said and, and, and th- thank Phil for that, because I think, you know, I agree with all that. Um, Two things I want to say. One is, in 2017, um, the Reut Institute and the Anti-Defamation League, these are two Zionist uh, pro-Israel think tanks, produced a secret report that uh, we got a copy of, and we, we published it, and we wrote about it. And one of the revelations in it, uh, uh, one of many, was that the Israel lobby up to that point had increased its spending on Hasbara and propaganda 20-fold in an effort to fight the BDS movement, in an effort to fight the Palestine Solidarity Movement. And by their own estimation, despite that 20-fold increase in spending, they had been unable to stop what they called the, uh, the, the 
significant growth and success of this movement. So I, that that's something to celebrate. It it's certainly not. Uh, a reason to rest on our laurels, but really an invitation to continue all the work we're doing. And the second thing I want to say is particularly uh, directed at uh, younger people, especially those who are just starting their working lives or who are uh, in college, is uh, that this is, you know, the one, the one thing we have learned you know, it's particularly the Democratic Party establishment and the Clinton era uh, taught people and uh, constantly propagandized people that you can only ask for small reforms, you know, just uh, little tweaks at the edges. And that's still what the Democratic Party is offering. And I think what younger people have taught us, and particularly the Black-led Black Lives Matter movement has taught us, uh, is teaching us now is that you have to ask for everything that you want and deserve and that is your right, even if you're going to get less less in the end, even if you're going to have to make some compromises or, or settle in the end, which we should not do. But there's no downside to asking for all your rights, demanding all your rights. And that's certainly true on Palestine. We have to ask for all our rights. We have to fight for them. We have to expect to win them. If you go in asking for 5% or 10% or 50%, well, that's that's the maximum you can hope for. And at this moment where everything is in flux, where everything is in collapse, where all the institutions have failed us, where the political class are telling us basically go and F yourselves. Uh, you know, and that includes the Democrats and the Republicans. There's no reason not to really demand a transform world. And that that really seeing a, a younger generation demanding that is what is giving me a great deal of hope to continue. And uh, so that, that's so I want to say thank you to young activists who are doing that and also to say, Please don't let up. Please don't accept or demand less than you deserve. And when you get everything you ask for, don't take yes for an answer. Demand more. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I guess this is a very good moment to stop. Thank you, everyone, for being with us. And I hope that we can post some resources. Uh, thanks, Phil. Thanks, Ali. Thank you, Nana. Thank, thank you, Nada. Thank you so much. Thank and thank you, Phil. You. And thanks, Haymarket and Mondo Weiss. Yeah, thank you, Haymarket and Mondo Weiss. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org. <laughs>